Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Today we're going to be in the book of Isaiah, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, go to Isaiah. Uh, but I was just, as I was preparing this message, thinking through, I go to a lot of funerals, and I think it's kind of like an occupational hazard of being a pastor. Like you go to a lot of, sometimes you know the people, and you grieve that, and you celebrate the things that Jesus did in their lives, but sometimes you go to funerals, they're bad funerals. Did you know you can rate funerals? Maybe it's just a thing pastors do. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm disconnected here. But here's a good funeral and a bad funeral. A good funeral we'll talk about in just a minute. bad funeral is when you go... And you leave and you think, that was nice, but that wasn't the person I knew. Usually the person was a scumbag or a jerk or something like really obnoxious, because at a funeral, everyone feels compelled to say nice things. And so you're like, they said a lot of nice things about somebody, but that wasn't the guy I worked with. Like, that's a bad funeral, just FYI. A good funeral, like it's a given, the pastor's job, whether he knew the person, didn't know the person, whether the person was a Christian, not a Christian, the pastor is not doing his job if he hasn't told you how you can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So that's a given. But a good funeral is when you go there and you knew the person and you learned some things you didn't know about them, but it's consistent with the character of the things you knew about them. It's like, like, maybe I never knew they had that job or I never knew that story or now I understand that better. And I was at a really good funeral a few weeks ago. It was for one of our founding members. Some of you knew him. Some of you didn't know him. Um, He's been ill for a while, so he hasn't been around in a little while, but his name was Bill Horton. And uh, Bill, founding member of our church, loved Jesus, super generous guy, very kind. And the best part of the funeral was when his two kids, his son and his daughter, got up and shared about their dad. And I remember when Brad got up, he shared some things that I, they were consistent with what I knew about Bill, but I didn't know any of these stories. And he talked about how his dad was in the military, and I didn't know him in the military days. I knew him after that. And he said his dad didn't really talk about it much. He was a Blue Beret in the Air Force. And he said, my dad didn't talk about the military very much. But we knew that he had some moves. He said, I learned that by experience. <laughs> if I went to wake him up in the middle of the night, what would happen is a karate chop would come. If that didn't land, then he'd do like a leg sweep. And the next thing I knew, he's standing in front of me, like ready to fight at that moment. And he told this story about how one night he was sick and he snuck into his parents' room and went to wake his dad up. And he said, I touched his back and I jumped backwards. My dad did the leg sweep, did the karate chop, jumped out of bed. He's looking at me. And I said, Dad, I don't, I don't feel well. I think I'm going to throw up. And those who know Bill know he's a very compassionate guy and kind guy. And he, he rushes his son into the bathroom, tries to keep everybody else asleep, turns the bathtub on and says, go for it. <laughs> now, many of you here, Bill was a football coach when he was younger. So those of you who did know him, you didn't know he was a football coach. He was a football coach. He said, Brad said, my dad started cheering me on as I was throwing up. So I started to throw up into the tub. He's like, you're at the 50, son. You got this. Come on, you got this. 45, 40. You can do it. Give it everything you got. And he's like, I'm throwing up. And I'm like, there's my dinner. Do I have anything else in me? Like, just keep going. He's like, you're coming at 30, 35. You got this, son. You can do this. You're coming into the 20. It's the red zone. Come on. It's the hardest part, but it's the best part. You're almost home. <laughs> he's cheering his son on, throwing up. <laughs> it's like, here I am vomiting. It's like everything I got coming out of me. And he said, and I think the reason why my dad did that because he so hated to see us in pain, he wanted to kind of carry us through it with his encouragement. Why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because we're doing this series in revival, right? Of course it connects. Obviously, don't you see this? <laughs> here's, here's why it connects. Because I was watching a son who was mourning the loss of his father but revealing more about his father. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture today where there's, there's somebody praying and they're lamenting 
But in their lament, they're revealing our Father. In fact, the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today in Isaiah, it's Isaiah 63 through 64, what we're going to see in that passage is really the essence of what revival is. We've been talking about the need for revival. If you haven't been with us, revival is bringing something back to life, awakening something that was once there that's not there anymore. And some of us in this room, we love Jesus more in the past than we do at this very moment. We need revival. If you look at the state of our country, we talk about politics and policy and all that kind of stuff. We need revival. There's a spiritual issue. If you look at the state of the church, it's not good. We need God to come and do something. There was a time when the church was thriving more than it is today. We need revival. And the essence of what we see that revival is, we see in this prayer with these these three three words really that that summarize the prayer, that, that God's a God who reveals. He reveals himself to us. He's a God who revives. He revives our souls. He's a God who restores. He restores our relationship with him. And so today, I've titled today's message, Revive, Reveal, Revive, Restore. And we're going to see the essence of what revival is as we look at this passage of Scripture. If you've got your Bible, Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah is a prophet. Those of you who are new to church, don't know what that means. Um, just so you know, like if you were thinking about making a list of people to invite to a party at your house, prophet's probably not high on the list, okay? They're not always the most fun person to be around, Like, if you're making a list, like, who's the party animal? Like, who makes people laugh? Who are the people like, start conversations? They've got good stories to tell. Like, think about, those of you who know the Bible, think the prophets are guys like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Jonah, Isaiah, sometimes thought of as the greatest prophet. Like, if you invited them to a party, what are you going to do? Hey, Ezekiel, tell us about the time when you cooked dinner over human feces. It's a real conversation starter because you're showing people how desperate their need was. Talk about the time when you laid on your side for 390 days, Ezekiel. Hey, Hosea, was it true that God told you to marry a prostitute? Hey, why don't you introduce us to your children? The one you named unloved, the other one you named not my people. That's interesting. If someone comes to a party and is like, hey, this is my son unloved and not my people, you're like, where's the hummus? All right, I don't even know what to do. (laughs) And so prophets aren't always the most popular people. They're not the kind of people you necessarily want in your life, but they're the kind of people you need in your life. Because here's what prophets do. They peel back the layers and they expose things like hypocrisy. They expose our pretentiousness. They show us our sinfulness. They show us our self-centeredness. They show us things that we might not want to see, but we need to see. And what they have an ability to do in culture is to show us, you know, while we're arguing about all these things that are happening in culture, let's peel back the, the veil here and let's show you what's really happening. There's spiritual issues taking place. And so that's what Isaiah does. Isaiah is a difficult book for us to jump into and just look at one passage. But if we were going to look at Isaiah, it would take us years to preach through Isaiah. There's 66 chapters. A lot of people parallel Isaiah to the Bible in the way that there's a first half, there's a second half. We're coming into the second half. Chapters 65 and 66 actually talk about a new heaven and a new earth. Chapters 52 and 53 talk about a suffering servant, Jesus the Messiah. Where we're at in chapter 63, right after chapter 62, in chapter 62, it's like the glories of heaven, how amazing this is going to be. And then what happens in chapter 63 is, oh, but we're not there yet. There's some problems. There's some sin. And it talks about God's work that he's done in the past. He's saying, do that kind of work again, because there's t- there was a time where your people were so sinful, you actually fought against your own people. They became your enemies because they were so rebellious to you, God. And some of us, if we're honest, we can look around and see that again. And so we look at this prayer, and I'm not going to say it's Isaiah that's praying. I'm just going to call him the intercessor because we don't know for sure who it is that's praying. But an intercessor is someone who prays on behalf of other people. 
And that's what's happening here is there's this intercession, and we'll start in chapter 63 and verse 15. Isaiah 63, 15, the intercessor prays this, look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation where you're at is glorious, implying it's not so much here. Where are your zeal and your might? They're missing. The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. Why are you holding back, God? For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. Last week when we ended, we were talking about a prayer last week too, the boldest prayer in the Bible in Ephesians chapter 3. And in chapter 19, or in verse 19, it said, fill us with the fullness of you, God. But I had to leave you asking a question, who is God? What does it mean for him to fill us? Here's the good news. The prayer we're looking at today, it's God revealed. Through this, this morning, he's revealing the Father to us. He's showing us who God is. Here's the great news about the God of the Bible. He's not a God concealed. He's a God revealed. He, we're not left here to just try and, I think God's like, or if I was going to worship a God, I'll make one up. No, he tells us who he is. He reveals himself to us continually through creation, through, through relationships we have, clearly, directly stated in his word. That's is God's revelation. That's what the Bible is, is revealing himself to us. Because one of the most dangerous things we can do is have misconceptions about God. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, said the most important thing about us is what comes to mind when we think of God. We're like, oh, that's overspeak. Pastors always overspeak, kind of hyperbole. It's a big talk. No, no, think about it. There's some misconceptions we can have about God. They seem pretty harmless. Have you ever heard this? Cleanliness is next to godliness. It's not in the Bible. Great verse to manipulate your kids with. Not in the Bible, though. It's just something made. It's like, it sounds good. How about this? God helps those who help themselves. First one's not that dangerous. You know, this one is. Think about how contrary that is to the saving faith that we talk about every week. God helps those who help themselves, or does God help those who place their faith in the one who did the work for them, that are saved by grace through faith, not of works? It's actually contrary to the Bible. What about the amount of people that believe that we're all God's children? Oh, really? Because the Bible says that many of us are children of wrath. Created in God's image, yes, but not God's children. You haven't been adopted into his family. How about this, that God is the universe, or that God's in everything, and you know what happens? We start worshiping the creation rather than the creator. The Bible speaks against that. It's his wrath. There are many things that are misconceptions that they seem harmless. They lead us down a deadly path. So good news is this, and it's our first point. God is a God who reveals. He is not a God concealed. He is a God revealed. And you see it in this very prayer, even though this is mourning, even though this is lamentation, like things are so bad here. And, and some scholars talk about this, the, the Babylonian exile. I don't think that's the case. I think the problem's bigger than that. And I think we're going to see it as we unpack this passage of Scripture. But, but look at the first thing that's prayed. It says, look down. Notice us. See us. <laughs> it makes me think of kids. I don't know if you've been around little kids. Some of you work in bridge kids. Some of you have little kids. You see the little kids, that they're like, hey, watch this. You see me? Hey, Dad. Mom, Papa, whoever, watch this, look at this, watch this, and they'll be doing nothing. Like, it's not even interesting, okay? It's like, my kids will be like, watch me on the swing, and they'll be swinging. I'm like, you going to do a trick? Like, what am I supposed to be watching here? Like, you're just back and forth, back and forth. We've got an inside joke in our family. I'll let you in on it. Uh, our kids get it. Now that they're a little bit older, it happened a couple of years ago, but we were out in the backyard one time, and we've got four kids. And they were all saying, it seemed like simultaneously to my wife, watch this, mom, watch this, see this, mom, hey, mom, mom, mom. It's like one of them does a cartwheel, one of them's jumping up and down, one of them's playing on the, the, the monkey bars or whatever, and it's like, none of y'all are doing anything that interesting. What are you doing? 
And so then I started mocking them, which isn't a good parenting technique, by the way. So I'm not saying to do this, I'm just telling you what I did, okay? And so I said, Shan, watch this. And I just started going, watch this, Shan, Shan, look, one leg, watch, you see? And they didn't get that I was mocking them then. <laughs> we were doing something the other day together. And they all started doing it. They were, mom, mom, watch this, mom, mom. And then one of the older kids said, you're going to hop on one leg, dad? They're like, you got it, you know. <laughs> Here's why, we all, we all want to be noticed. We all want to be seen, especially by somebody that we think is important, somebody that's important to us. The prayer here is, look, look, see me? Do you notice? Like, it doesn't feel like you're noticing God. It doesn't feel like you see. Look what the prayer goes on to say. See, you're in heaven. You're holy. You've got this beautiful habitation. But where are your zeal and your might? It feels like they're not here. Zeal is your passion. Do you care? Your might, your action, that you do something? Ever feel like that? Ever feel like there's stuff happening in my life, and I don't even know if God knows. Maybe in my head I know that he knows. It doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem like he's paying attention. I believe he did some stuff in the past. Well, if you read Isaiah 63 before this, it's like you did these amazing things in the past, but where are you now? You can identify with this prayer then. It's the stirring of your inner parts. Like, do you feel this? Do you, do you, you care? Your compassion? Compassion is like overflowing love. Like you, you can feel the pain of someone else and your love, out of overflowing love, you do something about it and, and it feels like to the person praying this is not, uh, the intercessor's going, this isn't happening. But it should be happening. Why? Verse 16, for this is the reason why there should be compassion. You should be moved. You should have zeal. You should do something for you are our Father. God is revealed here as Father. And then if you didn't get it, he says it again. Though Abraham doesn't know us, maybe Israel, because we're so sinful, wouldn't even acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer. From old is your name. Famous pastor and scholar Sinclair Ferguson was once asked, what's the greatest misconception about God? I've mentioned a few today. But he said, it's the fatherhood of God. He said, because many people, they can conceive of a father, an earthly father, but they can't imagine what a heavenly father is really like. And there's lots of reasons for that. We could get into that. Many of you had bad dads, maybe an absent father or a passive father, an overbearing father, an alcoholic father, an abusive father, lots of bad adjectives I could use to describe a father. But even if he had a great dad, he wasn't perfect. What Ferguson goes on to say is he says, when you think about father, it's, it's his love and it's his direction that we oftentimes see of God in the Bible. You think about what, what, is, what is the person, the intercessor crying out for here in the fatherhood of God that they're not experiencing, that they want because God is our Father. And we see it all through the Bible, that God is Father. We see it in, in the creation. It doesn't say God is the Father of Adam, but he's created Adam in his image. You see, when Jesus is baptized, you know, we're going to baptize people today. When Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened up, and God said, this is my Son, whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. He's revealing himself as Father. We're taught to pray, our Father, who art in heaven the fatherhood of God. So what does it mean? Here it means first, go back to verse 15. He sees us. He notices what's happening in our lives. Did you know the first title that's given to God in the Bible by a person is the God who sees? It's in Genesis chapter 16. If you want to read it on your own, there's this woman, Hagar. She's a single mom in difficult circumstances. She's being mocked. Difficult things are happening. Don't know she can take care of her kids. She starts fleeing. She runs. And then she realizes that even in her fleeing, God's pursuing her. Isn't that great? God pursues us even when we're fleeing. And even in her fleeing, God's got a plan for her. And he sees her. And so she says, you are the God who sees. 
One of the more tender passages in the Old Testament is in Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush passage, but we get caught up a lot of times like, who are you? I am. I can't speak. I stutter. Like, forget all that stuff. Do you know why God's speaking to him? Go to verse 7 in Exodus chapter 3. What it says is that God says, I've seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cry. They're in bondage. They've been in slavery. He's going, I've seen. I, I know they're suffering, he says. I, I know they're suffering. Listen, some of you here have gone through some difficult stuff, maybe this week. I want you to know this before we can go any further in this passage. God sees you, He knows, He cares. Some of you here struggling, lost a job maybe, He sees, He knows, He cares. You're trying to get pregnant can't get pregnant, maybe your marriage is struggling, maybe one spouse is rebelling, they're, they're a prodigal, they're sitting here in this room today, but they're a prodigal, he sees, he knows, he cares. Some of you have prodigal kids, it's the biggest burden on your heart. He cares more than you do. He sees, he knows, he cares. Health issues, struggles in relationships, got somebody coming against you, people saying stuff that's not true, all kinds of, he sees, no one else in this room might know, he knows, he cares more than you do about what's happening in your life. Father, look at us. Look at us. You're our Father. You should see. What about, what about your zeal? Is there no, no passion in this? Do you, what about your might? Why don't you do something about this? And, and what about your compassion? It's overflowing love. Why isn't there that? When I was at that funeral, not only did Brad, Bill's son, share, but Kimberly, his daughter, shared. And she shared a story that at first just kind of inspired me as I thought about, well, Bill's a very generous guy. Anybody who knew him knew that. And I thought, I want to be generous with my kids like that. But then as I thought more about it, I thought about, you know, one of the biggest mistakes I make as a parent, it's not sarcasm and mockery, because um, I don't really have a big intention to stop that. So I don't want to say it's my biggest mistake. Um, <laughs> one of the big mistakes I make with my kids is I just turned 43. My kids are uh, 13, 12, 10, and 8. And a lot of times I expect them to have the maturity of a 43-year-old. And, I, and I, I expect them to value what I value as a 43-year-old. Like, oh, you lost your toy. It's just a toy. Like, I don't care. And it's a big deal to them. So I fail to enter into their world. See, that's to see is more than just to observe. It's like to enter in. Compassion is you feel this and this overflowing love. And so Kimberly, she shares this story. She said they were, when they were little kids, like 12, 8 years old, they were headed to Virginia to Grandma's house. And they were headed up from Raleigh to Virginia. You can think about that drive, and you're a kid. So when we got to Grandma's house, there weren't any toys. There was nothing to play with. It was all like adult stuff. We hated going there. And we were intentionally being a pain in the butt to our mom and dad as they sat in the front of the car. So, yes, parents, they're doing it on purpose sometimes. So her and Brad, they were just fighting with each other, having a hard time. And at some moment, I can't remember if it was a rest area or what it was, they stopped. And Bill said, if you'll make this bearable for your mother, I've got a surprise for you. As I heard the story, I was thinking, I bribe my kids all the time. This is great. Like, I'm just doing the same thing I'll do, and you're telling a story about it. And so she was thinking she was going to maybe get some ice cream, just have my good manners, and don't be too bad, and then we won't touch each other or fight and everything, and we'll get a snack or, like, some kind of food thing. And, and they pulled up to, instead, Toys R Us. How many of you here are old enough to remember when Toys R Us was cool? Like, before Amazon, before, like, every store had toys. It was, like, the only place you were going to get toys was at Toys R Us. They pulled into the parking lot at Toys R Us. And they got out of the car, and Bill handed a cart to Brad. Brad was eight years old, and said, go fill the cart up with anything you want. Can you imagine that as an eight-year-old? 
Like some of you are like, why oh, these are the high dollar items. No, like as an eight-year-old, you're just going to like, the, the most fun toy. And you're going to put it in there, it doesn't matter the size. Like you're just filling that card up. And then handed the card over to Kimberly, and she talked about how at that very moment in history, the dolls that were her favorite that had just come out, he said, fill it up. And they went and they filled the carts up. After I thought about that story, I thought, you know, it was generous, yes. But what he was doing as a grown man as he was realizing, these kids, of course they're being obnoxious. Everything's geared towards adults right here. Well, I'm going to enter into their world. And, and I'm going to care about what's happening. I'm going to take action about what's happening. You know, it's actually a picture of the very thing that Jesus did for you. Do you want to know if God sees? Oh, he saw the problem that we had, a sin problem. He's a holy God. We're unholy people. It's a problem we would never solve. And so what does he do? He enters into our world through the womb of a teenage girl. The born of a virgin and then lives a life experiencing everything that you and I experience is tempted in every way. Every physical pain that you've had, that you've wanted to complain about, tempted physically. Every emotional, ever been, been exhausted. We sang about being exhausted this morning. He, he knew what it's like to be exhausted, to want to get away, the crowds to leave him alone. Every sexual temptation you've had, he was tempted in every way as you've been tempted, but did not sin. And then gave you Something you'd have never, he died. Who would have ever thought that? He died for you on the cross, absorbing the wrath of God as your substitute in that moment took action for you. Where's your might? Where's your zeal? There it is. It's at the cross. You have a father who loves you. He sees, he knows, he cares. What about direction? Look at the next part of this passage. Does he direct us? Because the intercessor here is sure asking for direction. Look what he says in verse 17. Verse 17 says, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Sounds like here he's blaming God for their sin. God, you've made our hearts hard. God, you're making us wander from you. This is actually Old Testament language. It's used in other places. It's a judicial way of speaking. It's God's judgment on them. Have you ever read Romans chapter 1? It's in the New Testament. You want, you want to see God's wrath? Sometimes God's wrath is like what he poured out on the cross on Jesus. Sometimes his wrath in our life is, that's, you want life without me? You can have that. You want, to, you want to do your thing? I'm going to give you what you want, and then you're going to suffer the consequences of that. That's where these people were. Their hearts had become so hard, what they're acknowledging here is, we wouldn't even turn to you if you didn't intervene and do something. Our hearts, you've, hardened our, you've let our hearts become hardened here. And he goes on. Return for the sake of your servants. This problem is bad. The tribes of your heritage, your people, your holy people, held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We've become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. In other words, if other nations looked at us, they wouldn't think to themselves, they serve Yahweh, they serve God, they're following the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're serving the God of the Bible. You know, the, Jesus' vision for us here is that we would live such lives that people would look at our lives, they glorify our Father in heaven. Let me tell you something, it's not happening. Ask most non-Christians what they think of Christians, and they don't say, oh, it's glorious they follow this God. I praise God in heaven because of the hypocritical, because of the judgmental, because of the... Ask what they think. There's a problem. Good news is this. He's not just a God who reveals. He's a God who revives. God is a God of revival. And if you want to see a picture of it, I don't know that there's a better picture in the Bible than this next verse in this prayer. Isaiah 64, 1. Oh, 
That's not a scholarly term, by the way. <laughs> we don't need to get into like the Hebrew of O. Oh. It's an emotional term. It's not like, oh, 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 I see. And it's not like, oh, oh. It's like, oh! Like, I'm crying out to God here. Oh! There's my translation. That you would rend the heavens and come down. See, we can't do this on our own. That the mountains might quake at your presence. So let me paraphrase that. God, come down here. Oh, God, come down here. We need you. We, we, this isn't going to happen apart from You know why he's able to pray that? Most of us, we couldn't pray that. We're manufacturing some emotion to pray that because we don't know the problem. We don't see the problem. And here's the deal. Most of us, it's not because we're rebelling against God. We're not trying to ignore it. We're just busy. We got kids. We got to run errands. We got a job to do. We go into our house. We close the door. We got shows to watch. We got think- we're just living our lives and we're not thinking about it. But the problem's serious. I heard another preacher preach on this passage. He's talking about the problem. And he quoted this stat. He said, every year, 10,000 to 6,000 churches are closed every year in America. I thought to myself, I know this guy. I know who he is. Where'd he get this stat? So I looked it up. Started looking. There's some articles that were going around this week online. Churches in decline. I don't know if you saw. Other than Kanye West released a new album, there's some other like, things that are happening in the world. And so there's like this articles going around. I had a couple people send this to me, and people are arguing about it. And I was like, Saw this one guy, Tom Rainer. He's a Southern Baptist. He's in, like one of the leaders at Lifeway Research, and and he said six thousand to ten thousand churches. And I thought to myself, well, we're Southern Baptists. I know what Southern Baptists do. Southern Baptists always exaggerate numbers. Okay, that's just a, it's like a family secret. Okay, because we're in the family, I make fun of them a little bit. You ever been to a Southern Baptist church and they're like we have ten thousand members? You look around and you're like about five hundred people here. Where are the rest of the members? It's like kind of how that that happens usually in that. So I was like, maybe it's not ten thousand. Maybe it's not six thousand. Maybe it's not even five. Maybe it's like three thousand. What if it's like three thousand churches a year? It's over 50 churches a week, right? Like if I'm, if I'm thinking about that, right? And then I gotta ask you this question. Do you care? It's not this church. It's not your church. So you just kind of get your head down, do your thing. But think about it. God says in the Bible that you were created for his glory. He's got one task for you to do. Go make disciples. And then one way that he does it is through his church. And so we've got churches closing every week and we don't care. We're like, I don't care about your plan for my life. I don't care about your plan for this world. Like, that's a problem. That's a bigger problem than, forget the numbers, problem and us not caring. Then you think about the churches. Think about what's happening when they close. Because at a church close, like, we can talk about Europe, and they go see, like, you can go to Boston and see that. I went to Boston this year. You go up there, and you walk around, and it's like a museum. And you're at this place where it's like, God did something here once, not now, but one time, some, at one time, people were getting baptized here. At one time, people were being saved. At one time, marriages were being reconciled, addictions were being broken, and people were walking in new freedom. At one time, but not now. I remember I was, three years ago, I was in, in Louisville, Kentucky, and somebody asked me, do you want to have the best tacos in Louisville? I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. Who doesn't like, good ta- who doesn't like tacos, right? Everybody likes tacos. It wasn't even Tuesday. I was just like, yeah, get tacos. We show up at this place. It was an old church. They were good tacos. They didn't impact my eternity, though. You ever heard people talk about, like, this food will change your life. Okay, maybe you'll eat that food all the time, but it's not going to change your eternity. And so we're sitting underneath stained glass windows waiting to go in and get, I mean, they had fish tacos, so that's good, right? But, I mean, salvation, fish tacos, if you don't see the difference, we got a problem. Like, there's a problem in our world. And you can go, well, not, but in Raleigh, I mean, there's, 
Churches aren't museums in Raleigh. Oh, yeah, they are. They're just filled up with people. There's a bunch of churches. They're not, they're, people, lives aren't being changed. The gospel's not being preached. People are going to church, not necessarily to have an encounter with God. They're going to church to hang out with their friends. Oh, God, run the heavens. Do something. We're making a mockery of what you've designed. People that, that will go to church with no thought that God might want to meet with them there. Not just, not just going to see their friends, but to, like even worse, just to be seen by other people. Oh, Lord, rend the heavens. Do something. This is wrong. Our churches, people use, use God to build their own fame. Like we're supposed to exist. You can talk about show up here to spread the, the fame of your name to your adversaries. That's why. That's why we want revival. That's why we want this to happen so that people that are against you would come into the fold. But you know that there are pastors, congregants that will use the name of Jesus to build their own platform. God, rend the heavens. Bring judgment where judgment needs to happen. Bring revival where revival needs to happen. But you're the one that's going to have to do it because obviously we've lost contact with you. We praise you with our lips. Our hearts are far from you. Rend the heaven. The word rend means to tear. Like get that image. The sky, tear the sky open. Corinthians says that Paul visited the third heaven. You can unpack that yourself. Email me when you have the answers. I'd love to hear them. No questions, just answers, please. Paul writing to Timothy it says that God dwells in unapproachable light. So get this picture of God tearing the sky open like a cloth and letting his glory shine through. That's what we need. We've lost contact with them. How many of you saw there was a plane that went down in Umstead Park this last weekend? Did you see that? How many of you see that story? Just so I know how much of the detail I need to share. Okay, a good percentage of you saw it. If not, you can Google that. Find WRL. They don't know why the plane went down yet. A couple was flying up from Florida. They were in this plane, and it crashed into Umstead, they, but they lost contact with the control center. I'm going to imagine as they were going into the trees of Umstead, it wasn't like, God, if you're out there, could you help us? Oh, God! We've lost contact. We need you to do something here. See, that's, that's where Christianity is headed in America, by the way. It's on the decline. Oh, God, will you do something? Start with me. Start here. You look at just in verse 1, too. We haven't even left verse 1. Look at verse 1 in six, chapter 64. Look at what else he said. Oh, come down. That, here's what I want you to do, that the mountains might quake at your presence. And there's something here about presence because look at verse 2. It's your presence. Verse 3, your presence. But Sarah says mountains might quake. He's probably referring back to Sinai. Do you know what Mount Sinai is? We all just sitting there like, I hope you're about to tell me. I don't even know what the Appalachian Trail is. All right. Mount Sinai, not in North Carolina, FYI, but it is where the Ten Commandments were given. The first time in Exodus chapter 19, you can read about it. And what happens there is that God comes down. He asks Moses to come up. He tells the people, they don't even touch the mountain. There are billows of smoke come on the mountain, thunder, lightning. God speaks in a voice of thunder to the people. There's a trumpet that's, that's coming. And you can be looking around like, where's the soundtrack? Because nobody was playing. It was coming from heaven. And there's billows of smoke that are coming up like in a kiln. And then God speaks and he gives his commandments. And if you didn't know the story, for those of you who do know the story, what do you think would happen next? If you were one of the people, wouldn't you be like, that was awesome. Do that. Can we do that tomorrow? Oh, more of that. Let me read you what happened. Exodus chapter 20, verse 18 says this. Now when all the people saw the thunder 
and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. That makes sense. And they trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen. Do not let God speak to us, lest we die. It's interesting, is when you look at Moses in the Bible, he's a guy who's greedy for God's glory. He's a guy who gets to go up on the mountaintop all the time. When God asks him a question in Exodus chapter 32, you can have whatever you want. What do you want? I want more of your glory. And then you got these people here. You get two responses when God rends the heavens. We don't want any more of that. Moses, you, you tell us about it. There's a good holy fear. That's good. But why do you want Moses to be the only one to experience this? And listen, it's not wrong to like listen to preaching. It's not wrong to have your favorite podcast. It's not wrong to like have a devotional you like to read. But can I tell you something as a believer in Jesus? You don't need Moses. Why are you always happy with secondhand food? If, this, if what I'm preaching to you right now is the best you get all week, why? Why? Do you know what happened when Jesus died on the cross? Do you know what he said? It is finished. Do you know what was finished at that moment? Him being your substitute. It's what theologians call the substitutionary atonement. What that means is he's a substitute. He died in your place. He was atoning for. He's paying for your sins. The wages of sin is death, separation from God. The gift of God is eternal life. That's what Jesus was giving. When he said, it is finished. That work is done. I've paid for your sins. I've absorbed the wrath of God. Do you know what happened in that moment? The veil was torn. Rend the heavens. In the temple that separated people from access to God, and the earth shook, shake the mountains, God. This prayer's been answered. It was answered at the cross. And what happened is then you're given direct access. You don't need a priest. You don't need Moses. You get to go directly. He reveals himself through this book that most of us have multiple copies of. If you don't, take one on your way out. He wants to speak to you. He wants to reveal himself to you. Do you even want, if you don't want that, there's a problem. You've lost contact. You need revival. Rend the heavens, God. We need you to come here. You know what? Some of us, if God actually showed up here today, some of us would be upset because the service got disrupted. Like there probably would be emails if God did something that was totally unexpected. They'd say, hey, pastor, can you make sure that doesn't happen again? We don't want any of that. How do you think Moses felt? Like, sure, I love going up on the mountain, but why don't you want it? And then you see what it says here. We don't have time to go through this whole passage, but 63 verse verse 2 talks about fire. That's language of judgment, by the way. Like, I know every worship song since 1995 has talked about fire, but here it's like judgment. Bring down your fire. No, please don't. Then verse 3, like, look look at verse 3 in chapter 64. I'll find it here eventually. When you did awesome things, so you've already done these things, the things we're asking you to do, it's not like we're just making this stuff up, but look at what he says next. We did not look for. You came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. You've done this before. What we're asking you to do is something you've done before, but when you did it before, we didn't even expect it. Now think about that for a second. Is it true that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? I mean, that's true. That is true. So then he's never changing interesting statement that we praise him about that because doesn't that sound kind of boring? Like, could you imagine if you were married to somebody who never changed? And some of you are like, oh man, I'm so glad that he's changed. Yes, I did say he. It was intentional. (laughs) I think about my wife and I. We've been married for almost 20 years. She, same social security number, same name, is not married to the same man that she was married to then. Amen. 
She's not here, I'll do it for her. We change, but could you imagine if you were married to somebody that every morning got up at 7.03, ate a Pop-Tart, for lunch had peanut butter and jelly, left work at 4.58, was home by 5.13. How boring. Consistent, but boring. Isn't it interesting that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, yet he's always doing things we would never expect? And so think about how that should influence the way we pray to him. Do you know why he's able to be the same? It is true. Yesterday, today, and forever, his character never changes, always loving, always father, always wrathful, always just, always merciful. That's always true. It's not God of the Old Testament, God of the New. He's God. But yet he does things, we, like think about the, what he's been referring to as the Red Sea experience. Think about when they were fleeing chariots and going to the Red Sea. No one was expecting, even when God said, wait right here and I'll fight for you. They didn't expect that the sea was going to open up. Maybe that the wheels were going to fall off the chariots. Maybe that they were going to fall on their own sword. Like something, God's going to do something, but that? No. Nope. We need a king. I'll give you a king, and you're not going to want him anymore. Saul. We need another king. Pick, we're going to one of Jesse's sons. All right, we'll bring out all the sons, and then the guy that he picks, they don't even bring David, who becomes the best king Israel's ever had. Uh, well, here, we want you to run the heavens. Okay, I'm going to do it through the womb of a 14-year-old girl who's never been with a man. And then the skies are going to open up multiple times, like when the angels come and they sing at his birth. Or at his baptism, when I say, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Or when the earth shakes and I tear the veil. You want me to run the heavens? You want me to, I'll answer your prayer, but not in a way you would ever imagine. What does it say here? What does it say in verse 3? We did not look for. Let me tell you something. The reason why God can do things that way is because he's so much bigger than we would ever imagine. And we come to him sometimes, we feel like we're bothering him. Like, could you just fix this broken leg? Could you do this? Like, even just what we challenge you to pray as a church. Like, we tell you, all the, like every membership class, regularly we're telling you, would you pray for lost people? Would you pick one that you pray for? Like, do you think God's ever up there like, I can save the one? Why don't you pray for your whole city? You can pray big prayers. You can dream big dreams. I'm a big God. He's big. Why wouldn't you ask him bold prayer requests? Why wouldn't you ask for the nations to see the glory of God, not just this church? He's a big, you can dream big dreams and pray big prayers because you have a big God. Come here when your presence, let us see it revive. He's not only a God who revives, he's a God who restores. And we don't have time to go through every verse um, through the rest of this chapter, but what you see here in his restoration is he talks a lot about sin first. He acts for those who wait for him. It's interesting. So God's the one who does the work. We're, we're the ones that trust, that we wait. And sometimes he, he, he almost never does it the way we would expect. Rarely does he do it in the time frame that we would want, but he's always at work. It's interesting from a guy who said, where's your power? Where's your might? Well, he, and he knows himself the truth, but isn't it hard sometimes when you're living in it? That's what he's saying. And then he's, he knows their sinfulness. He knows their problem. Verse 5, can we even be saved? Like, is it even, is it even possible for you to save us? And then verse 6, he talks about how sinful they are. We're like one who is unclean. That's a leper. Lepers don't even go and worship. I'm going to infect everybody else. I can't even go there. I'm going to mess this whole place up. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So they've got four similes in this one verse about what our sin is like. Did you notice he didn't say our sin is like a polluted garment, which is actually language for a dirty menstrual cloth? It says our righteous deeds 
Remember what prophets are like. They peel back the layers and they expose hypocrisy. This doesn't mean that every righteous deed is like a a filthy menstrual garment, garment, by the way. But theirs were because of their hypocrisy. It says here, it's like a leaf. The falls here, we know what this is like. They fall off. They're not connected any longer. They dry up. And like the wind takes it away, blows it away. There's no life in it. It's wandering. It's like what he was talking about. Our hard hearts were wandering away from you. And it goes through and he calls him Father again in verse 8. But then verse 12 is interesting. Will you restrain yourself from all these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Remember at the beginning of the prayer? It says, why are you holding back your love? Rend the heavens. And he says, but hold back your wrath. Selective, and then that how we pray. He didn't hold back his wrath. He poured it out on his son. This prayer has been answered. It was the gospel. Where's your love? Where's your compassion? Do you see? Oh, I see. I see the problem. Rend the heavens. I will through the womb of a girl. He's going to come. He's going to experience everything you've experienced. He's going to enter into your world. And he's going to be a king, but not a king like you've ever seen before. A king who comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Ransom? What's he paying for? He's paying for your sins. He's your substitute at the cross. He's dying for you. He's taking action. He's mighty to save. He's zealous for you. And he's coming after you even when you're fleeing. Do you know why? Because he sees, he knows, and he cares. See, different people in this room, you're at different places. Some of you, not even believers in Jesus yet. The very fact you're listening to these words means you're involved. Let me tell you what. You're at the 50. Come on, you got this. You know the hardest part? Hardest part is you get the red zone. You know what the red zone is? You can acknowledge your sin before him, that you can't do this on your own, that you need a savior. That's the hardest part, but you're almost home. You're almost home. You're almost in the end zone. And he's, he's your father. He's going, come on, you got this. Come to me. You need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior today. Some of you are believers, but you've been, you've been praying to a small God. That's not the God of the Bible. God, rend the heavens. Let us see you for who you are. You are a big God. Start crying out to him with a bigger faith. Some of you, your hearts have grown cold, and you've wandered from him, and they've gotten hard, and you can't even turn to him. I hope maybe right now you're thinking about lunch. That's a bad sign. But maybe, maybe you're thinking about him. And his call in your life, that he's still pursuing you. That he's still coming after you. He's still got a plan for you. That's a sign that he's pulling your heart back, that he's intervening, that he's reviving. He's a God who reveals himself. He is your father. He revives our souls and he restores our relationship. And we're going to go to him right now and ask him to do that very thing.